Once upon a time, there was a farmer in the middle of Nebraska. It was the 1970s. The farmer said yes to the invitation made by a local program that builds relationships for people with developmental disabilities. The program, Citizen Advocacy, was a brand new concept. There were many skeptics who said that an ordinary citizen would never give up his or her own time and resources without pay for the benefit of someone who belongs in an institution. The farmer proved them wrong. He became a citizen advocate, a friend to a developmentally disabled man who had just left a mental institution. For over four decades, hundreds of thousands of people with disabilities have benefited from the relationship-building work of citizen advocacy programs that have existed all over the world. The movement has largely dwindled. Many of us who are doing it today are indebted to this movement, do for one included, for the well-thought-out and workable program model, and we're striving to understand how to carry these ideas forward. In this episode, you'll meet Tom. Is anybody here who totally understands human relationships? <laughs> He's the founder and former coordinator for over 30 years of North Quabbin Citizen Advocacy. Tom gave a talk about citizen advocacy with our leaders in October 2019. Anybody here who understands their own relationships with other people? I mean, like, duh. So it's, it's, we're, we're involved with people in their relationships. It's going to be messy and going to be confusing. You'll get to hear him tell the story about the farmer in Nebraska and how the citizen advocacy movement got started. Also, this will be the last episode of season one. The stories you've heard raise questions that don't always have easy and straightforward answers. As complicated and disheartening as these stories get at times, one thing we discover along the way is how hope is found through family, friends, and advocates. The need is for personal human relationships, which are motivated by love. You learned about the bad old institutional days and how things have and have not changed today. In this episode, Tom will describe what took place to lay the groundwork for the citizen advocacy movement. You'll also hear from some friends of the Do For One Network, like Ben. People with disabilities are capable, more capable than you think. You just need to give them a chance. You know, like that's another thing, like just being willing to give people a chance. Thank you for listening to Belonging Together. It's an orientation to do for one's work, guided by stories. Fresh out of college, Tom became an attendant nurse in one of the big, bad, old institutions. And he later gets exposed to the work and teachings of Wolf Wolfensberger, who created Citizen Advocacy. Those that understand the history of services to the developmentally disabled know that Wolf Wolfensberger is among the most influential thinkers and leaders of reform during the deinstitutionalization movement. In summary, his ideas and influence led to people with developmental disabilities living in ordinary houses and apartments, attending regular schools, obtaining work, 
In other words, the big mindset shift from segregating people away to big institutions to now all the ideas around integration and person-centeredness is largely thanks to him. Tom starts the story of citizen advocacy by telling us about an event where Wolf Wolfensberger tells the story of citizen advocacy. We're done at supper time. So we scheduled an event for Wolfensberger to talk about the history of citizen advocacy. And, um, and I invited people to come. So there's like, you know, 20 people sitting around in the room to hear Wolfensberger tell the story of citizen advocacy. So Tom assumes this little presentation is going to start in the 1960s or 70s, which is when anyone would start the story of citizen advocacy. But Wolf goes a little further back in time to the bones of the Neanderthals. Bones of the Neanderthals. All right. This is the history of citizen advocacy. And what he said is that um, you find evidence in the bones of the Neanderthals that there were people with significant physical disabilities that had impacted, you know, on their skeletal structure and all that survives of the Neanderthals. And you can tell from the bones that these weren't, that their people had these injuries and that they'd had them for a long period of time and still stayed alive. And that you could be pretty sure that in Neanderthal times there was no Department of Developmental Services or Department of Mental Health. Um, or, you know, trained social workers <laughs> who were providing the supports so that it must have come from other people within the village or tribe or clan. So this idea of neighborly caring, you know, and being providing the support that folks with disabilities have so that they could continue being part of the, the life of the community so that they would stay alive, it goes back at least to the bones of the Neanderthals. Tom, of course, captures the main point that Wolf was making. So this capacity within human beings is not a new thing. It's always been there within us. You know, kind of part of our dual nature as human beings, that we can be um, loving and supportive and nurturing, and we can also be total jerks. You know, that, I mean, this is, this is our human history. If you, I hope I didn't upset anybody by saying that people can be really jerks. But <laughs> not these people, they're not jerks. <laughs> you know the world, you know the world. So, but that's not the citizen advocacy program model. You know? it's, um, the program model is kind of a, you know, it's a way to call forth more of that um, neighborly caring that has been demonstrated to be in the, in, the, in the capacities or in the potential of who we are as people. Okay, so sorry about the background noise and the audio, by the way. It is New York City. Um, jumping ahead in the story just a little bit. So... Going to jump forward now from the bones of the Neanderthals until the 1960s. <laughs> and, uh, big jump, yeah. big jump, big jump. As we discovered in the first two episodes, people in this time were placed in mental institutions or stayed at home. Tom goes on to describe how parent associations started pushing for more opportunities for their children. They started pushing for opportunities for their children, something other than either we'll do it ourselves or the institution will do it. Perhaps you remember Willie Mae Goodman from the first episode. She's the mother of Margaret, and if you remember, Margaret followed a similar path as Tony, who you also met in the first two episodes, going from Willowbrook State School on Staten Island, New York City, to Gouverneur Hospital um, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Here she shares with us the type of force that parents were back then. 
And uh, my thing has always been all my life since Marguerite was born. She has manifested in me to not only think about her, but to think about others. So just to give you an idea of the kinds of things that were happening back then by parents, here's Willie Mae Goodman describing New York City in the 1970s when the institutions were closing down and they were pushing for better services. Well, at that time, uh, people were more community involved. Mm-hmm. The radio We called the radio stations. And we, we went into the community. We uh, got people, to, politicians to support us. And I think what happened in the 70s, in fact, I know what happened in the 70s, when the parents was going out at the Willowbrook, when the Willowbrook had all of them, and parents started developing their own group home, like YI and mm-hmm. UCP and ARC, mm-hmm. they were developed by parents. Mm-hmm. So those acronyms that she just mentioned are prominent agencies that people with developmental disabilities benefit from today, uh, providing group homes, work programs, dayhab programs, things like that. Okay, so similar movements like this were happening all over the country. Parents, human service planners, politicians began working together on ways to move forward after the horrors of the institutional days. Of course, all of this is just so you can understand what was happening around the time citizen advocacy was created. So let me bring it back to Tom, and he'll tell us what's happening in Nebraska. And of all places in Nebraska, in eastern Nebraska, um, Wolfensberger and others people, they um, convinced the state to start changing the way that they spent their money and to establish a community-based service system and to offer people opportunities to go to school. And when they were doing this work in Nebraska, they traveled around talked to lots of people. And one of the questions that was always asked by the parents of folks with intellectual disabilities was, can you guess? What's the big concern of the parents who are really the key support for their child who has a disability? What happens when they can't do it anymore? Exactly. What happens to my child when I'm gone? What happens to my child when I'm not there to see what's going on behind closed doors? Willie Mae Goodman expresses her concern. It's not easy, um, and I always say this, it's not easy, even now, to relax knowing that somebody else is taking care of your child. You know what I mean? Although we fought, and we try to fight, we fought for better things, but it's not better, it's getting worse. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, only thing that's really happening is that we in small Willowbrooks, not in a big ground wherever, and the children room may look a little different. They got a television, they got a, uh, a little radio. But I think what the system did, moved us into the community, but brought the ideas into the house. Mm-hmm. So the ideas are having changed. You know what I mean? They still mm-hmm. institutional thinking. And I always ask the question, do we really truly know how to take kids with take care of kids with special needs so in the 70s during these drastic changes there were many responses to the question of what happens to my child when i'm gone and that there have been 
um, various kinds of efforts over the course of, of history to um, try and come up with um, what helpful responses or helpful answers, helpful responses to that question. Things like guardianship, adoptive parenting, property protection, and trusts. The criticism toward these forms were that they were too many clients for too few workers, which would cause staff to work harder at pleasing their boss than than the people that they're serving. This lot led to major conflicts of interest. Another problem is that plans set for individuals are typically never set in motion. And there's a staff turnover rate, which is a major cause of this. And lastly, expressive needs are almost never provided for, such as someone to listen to one's hurts or a friend to go out to dinner with. In the 1960s, um, right around 1970, a little bit before 1970s, and I don't have the exact years like I wasn't there, but there was this concert conference sponsored by United Cerebral Palsy. <coughs> Dr. Wolfensberger went, as a, he described himself as, I was a young man, I was a junior man there at this conference. <laughs> and they were looking at all the ways that um, protection and advocacy could be provided for people with disabilities, intellectual disabilities, but other disabilities as well. So they were looking at all these different approaches that had been tried in different places. So here's young Wolf Wolfensberger, He's heard the cries of many parents, and he arrives at this conference. He's listening, taking notes, and sitting quietly. So they looked at all these options, and this is what this conference was about. And that Wolfensberger, who's, um, like I've described him already, is hardworking, scholarly, thoughtful. Um, so they had these discussions. He said he didn't say much, but he took a lot of notes. And then he went back to his room that night, stayed up all night long, you know, thinking, what are the pros and cons of each of these approaches? And so what kind of a program model would um, maximize the positives and minimize the negatives? Right? And he made up citizen advocacy that night in his room. So as Wolf Wolfensberger weighed the pros and cons of different ways that people can be protected and provided for beyond their parents, he came up with some points some elements that work best. And some of those elements are it works better when it's done individual by individual. It works better when the person doing the advocating really knows and cares about the individual who has some kind of a disability. Um, it works better when the person doing the advocating um, is as is, um, is free as possible from conflict of interest. Um, it works better when the person has some support. So all of these points might sound really obvious. But there were no programs that provided services like this. Today, it's largely the same. This is why citizen advocacy is such an important program model to know about. So he made up citizen advocacy. You know, with drawing those, those are some of the lessons that he drew. But up to this point, citizen advocacy is just an idea on scraps of paper. He was about to present it at this conference. What will the response be? He went back the next morning and he presented it to all these um, North American leaders in protection and advocacy at the individual person level, and they told him he was crazy. You know why he was crazy? Like, why would anybody voluntarily be involved with one of those people? With one of those people.
The root problem that Do For One addresses is not disability, but it's the attitudes and perceptions of disability. There are so many unwarranted fears that separate us from each other. People with disabilities face all kinds of stigma. Some with intellectual disabilities might be viewed as childlike, such as Jack in the first episode when he was saying, stop saying I'm not smart, I am smart. Or incapable of participating in communities, such as what Jerry shared during his presentation, and we featured that presentation in um, episode three. Like when I came here to do the speech, a lot of people in my residence said, wow, a speech? We never known anybody here to do a speech. Another negative stereotype is seeing people with disabilities as deviant or dangerous. You might remember Devin sharing about this in episode five. And I was reading an article lately of how police violence is, a, is really a problem these days and why these cops need training to treat um, special need people, especially um, others with autism, especially, especially myself. I spoke with Ben Theriath, who you've not heard from yet in this podcast. He's a good friend of mine and a good friend of many of us at Do For One about life experiences in a wheelchair. Well, I mean, right off the bat, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, if I'm if I'm with someone, if I'm with a friend or something and, and a stranger comes up, they'll immediately start talking to the person next to me about me, probably not knowing how they can even talk to me. You know, they'll ask questions about me, like what happened to him or, you know, why is he in a wheelchair? Um, instead of addressing me directly, you know, they'll kind of probably feel more comfortable talking to somebody that they can relate to, um, being a quote-unquote normal person, you know. So I think that's, to me, like, that's the biggest sign of, like, initial discomfort of, like, approaching somebody with a disability, from my experience. Ben summarizes the issue of devaluation that we address this way. I think it's definitely our attitude. I think it's all about perception, you know. The idea of not including somebody had to come from somewhere, right? has very little to do with a clinical diagnosis. So what helped Ben the most in his journey? Was it laws being passed? Was it ramps and elevators? New technology? My friends, for sure. My closest friends, for sure, have pushed me to um, go beyond just my comfort level, you know, and never settle for just being comfortable, but go beyond that. And and for a long time, it didn't make sense to me um, because I, all I wanted to do was be comfortable. Um, but they saw more potential in me than I saw in myself. And he summarizes this point so well right here. I think before even thinking about ramps and elevators, I think just an openness to invite a person with a disability somewhere, I think that speaks accessibility in greater volumes than having a ramp legally somewhere just for the sake of it. You know, because we can have a ramp or an elevator, but if there's never anyone to use it, then there's really no point. Okay, so going back to Tom and the citizen advocacy story. In his talk, Tom went on about the naysayers in the room when citizen advocacy was revealed. People at the conference saying that it wouldn't work. And he asked us if we had ever heard those types of comments. And of course, the answer is yes, absolutely. I'm sure that you've heard people say, well, I don't have any training or any background or expertise. How could I be helpful? 
So most people were skeptical of this idea of building freely given, supportive relationships for people with disabilities. But there were a few in Nebraska who said, Well, that makes sense. Let's give it a try. And um, they did. And that it, um, it did work. People said yes. And Tom shares a story about one of the first citizen advocacy relationships. He was a, he was a farmer in Nebraska. Surprise, surprise. And that um, a fellow who'd been in the institution for a lot of years was being released and sent back to the community and um, needed somebody to kind of help him get reestablished in, his, um, in, his, in a home community. So that, the, I guess there was some financial support at first that the guy, I don't know if there even was, um, but he moved in with a farmer and um, you know, helped out in the farm. And um, then when he moved into town, the family stayed involved with him and like helped him to get set up in a, an apartment up over the hardware store or something like that. And that, um, you know, that at that point in time it had been 20 years and that they'd just kind of been a background support from this guy, helping him get like back into the world, get a job, get work, um, deal with some of the problems of community life, you know, like managing your money and, and you know, whatever it was. And um, yeah, it was just lovely to hear. But anyhow, it worked. So it worked. There were relationships that started, and the citizen advocacy movement grew. And then there were a bunch of other programs that got started in Nebraska. And then there was this heyday for citizen advocacy in the 1970s. The movement grew nationally and even went international. But there has been a long and gradual decline in these programs beautiful, simple, and vital need is being addressed here, but the program model, which is designed to rely upon the community's commitment to be personal advocates, is not easy to maintain. When you think of this idea of volunteering somewhere, it's not likely that you'll think of building a personal and mutually beneficial relationship with the person served. To give you a window inside how Do For One is carrying these ideas forward, I'll play the audio of Jane Yoon, coordinator at Do For One, as she shares the distinct opportunity we offer. And this clip is from our fall info session. So oftentimes when we think about volunteering for an organization, we think of maybe serving at a food pantry on Thanksgiving or donating money. But um, in some ways that is a form of distant love where we help out formal service structures in what they do. It's not bad and sometimes it's necessary, but for us it comes down to this. So tonight we want to invite you guys to consider entering into a freely given friendship with one vulnerable person. The realities of a broken world is that we're all vulnerable. Vulnerable to being wounded by broken relationships. Vulnerable to being pushed around by bureaucracies. But people with developmental disabilities are far more likely to experience deeper wounds, and often repeatedly so. Wounds like uh, stigma and, and segregation, uh, being bullied, and so on. There's no amount of money or laws being passed that can address this need as effectively as personal and freely given relationships. But these kinds of relationships rarely happen. Instead, people with developmental disabilities have only paid workers in their lives. A do for one is built upon the belief that if a vulnerable person has at least one freely given relationship from someone in the valued world, it's less likely for them to be inflicted with further wounding. 
and it opens up the door for many new possibilities they might not otherwise experience. Because these natural connections rarely happen on their own. In fact, many people with disabilities live in professionally controlled settings which serve as an actual barrier to real relationships forming. And Do For One serves as a bridge between two worlds that rarely meet. We build relationships and support them. Jane brings home the point here. So this all points us to why matching people with disabilities with one friend who loves them and knows them and can utilize their natural connections to support them actually brings more change to a person's life than any program or amount of money can. To serve in as example, from the episode Turning Toward Love, our very own Alexa, who became an advocate through Do For One, shares about how ordinary things done with extraordinary love can create new possibilities for everyone. Alvina has become a big part of my life outside of the boxes of what you might think of as typical volunteer opportunities. We make plans when we're free and take breaks when things get crazy. We cook meals and look up YouTube videos and plan birthday parties. We share our stories and heartbreaks and hopes. We are friends, so we do what friends do. Um, so last year, Alvina and I traveled to Virginia for my extended family's Thanksgiving gathering. The night was so fun, and the highlight being um, when Alvina started a dance party and coaxed my most timid relatives to the dance floor. It was a time that we enjoyed more because she was there. She and my mom now talk on the phone on a regular basis, and she often gives me family updates that I haven't heard yet. <laughs> she... <laughs> She has nicknames for each of my family members, and her, her favorite question to ask is how our dogs are doing, which I don't usually know. <laughs> Tom was such a help to our leaders, and I hope to share more clips of his talk he did with us in future episodes. He shared with us what's on his mind with regard to the citizen advocacy movement that was once thriving in the 1970s. I find it interesting to think about what we, what's going on that made it hard for the movement to continue, hard for the movement to grow, yeah. and elements of that that are just part of the kind of the social scene around it, mm -hmm. and part elements of that that are ways that um, we shot ourselves in the foot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which are the things that you can actually take responsibility for. Mm -hmm. You can't change the way the world is, but you can change what you do yourselves. Yeah. You can't change the way the world is, he says but you can change what you do yourselves. And the focus now for us is on the future. I hope you find it interesting and helpful to hear from Tom and to learn about the deeper history of our work. If you're interested in meeting us and learning more on how to get involved with our work in New York City, please check out our website, doforone.org, and attend our next info session or sign up for our newsletter and track with us. As this season comes to a close, thank you so much for listening Please share these stories with your friends as it helps promote our work, and I'll talk to you soon.